Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this, of course, is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. So I'm going to do my best not to go off on a long-winded digression about my tech woes, but in case you missed it, my refurbished MacBook Pro that I bought directly from Apple a couple of years back suddenly crapped the proverbial bed. It ended up being a memory problem, I know what that's like, and uh, since the RAM is soldered to the logic board, it would have been roughly a $300 uh, out-of-warranty repair, parts alone before factoring in labor. So I sold it for parts on eBay and bought a used 2011 Mac Mini. So I've come full circle. I'm working on a Mac Mini again. Except this model is a year older than the one I sold on eBay a few months back when I decided to make uh, the faulty MacBook Pro that just died my main computer. So in retrospect, uh, not such a smart move. But, you know, the hubris on me to think that, you know, a premium computer might last more than a couple of years. Uh, anyway, can you hear the bitterness in my voice? Anyway, in the interim, I recently recorded an almost three-hour-long episode on a glitchy Dell laptop I use as a backup uh, computer. The bright side is, since GarageBand obviously isn't available on Windows, it gave me an excuse to finally familiarize... I'm so bad with that word. Familiar... Familiarize. Such a basic word, but it always trips me up. At least recently. I don't know what the deal is. Um, anyway, so it gave me a chance to get acquainted. I can say acquainted, but I can't say the other word. I'm not even going to try to attempt it now. Um, it gave me a chance to get acquainted with uh, with the software, you know, Adobe Audition. I pay roughly 50 bucks every month for my Creative Cloud subscription, so it's always good when I can kind of justify that cost by getting use out of the software. Uh, I actually liked working in or with Audition, and it was pretty easy finding my way around. So I finished editing that epically long unscripted episode this past Sunday, and originally it was intended to be publicly available, but I felt bad about, you know, falling so far behind with the show and being so slow to get out new content, and I felt like my first duty was to the Patreon supporters, so I decided to make that episode, you know, a Patreon bonus show. And this one here, this one's for everybody. All right, all right. And I thought I was done with that tech uh, digression, but, you know, another silver lining is that uh, 2011 Mac Mini I bought isn't capable of upgrading to the latest OS, uh, Catalina. And to me, that's a good thing. I always regretted upgrading on my other machine. I lost the use of some of my favorite uh, apps because Catalina or Catalina doesn't let you run um, 32-bit apps. I think that's what it is. Uh, so finally, on this older machine, I'm able to use QuickTime Pro again. It's a simple little app, but that was always my go-to app for editing show clips on the fly. So, you know, that's good. And so a bit more house cleaning. Is it house cleaning or housekeeping? I forget how the uh, phrase goes. But uh, I, I think Sam Harris always used to use that at the beginning of his podcast, too. Uh, anyway, I've been wanting to breathe some new life into the show. And I came up with what I think is a pretty solid format plan. 
So I'm thinking the first two shows every month will be kind of streamlined news story episodes broken up into segments. The first segment, roughly three or so religious news stories from a skeptical perspective, of course. And then a quick politics section. And I know not everyone who listens to the show shares my politics, so you might be apprehensive about the idea of a regular politics section. But in a sense, it's actually an attempt to limit how political I get on the show. Instead of going on long-winded political digressions, I'll just keep political stories that have nothing to do with religion or atheism contained in that one relatively short segment. That's the plan, anyway. And you guys know how much I like ancient history, archaeology, uh, that kind of thing. So I might also have a brief kind of history slash science segment in each episode, too, where I just quickly talk about one story having to do with, you know, history or archaeology, or it could even be like some kind of science breakthrough or something, uh, that kind of thing. And then I might end those episodes with a brief pop culture segment where I talk about music or movies, TV shows I'm into, or that caught my attention, stuff like that. And so, yeah, so the first two weeks of each month will be those kind of topical news story episodes. And then the third show every month will either be one of those brief, you know, audio documentaries, although I'll make, you know, a YouTube version too, of course, or just a whole episode devoted to a single topic. And then the last episode, you know, each month will be kind of one of those long, free-form, unscripted episodes. I know some of you, you know, guys out there uh, prefer that kind of format. But I think that sounds like a pretty good plan. You know, let me know what you guys think. And I do realize there's one potential pitfall, and that's that politics and religion often overlap. So trying to contain certain stories to certain segments might get messy. But I figure as long as they have something to do with religion, even if it's... Um, even if they're political in nature, those stories will be relegated to the religion segment, and ones that have absolutely nothing to do with religion will go into the politics segment or section. Pretty good, pretty good. All right, all right. And I'm feeling really mellow tonight. For the first time in a while, I took, uh, <laughs> I took some Kratom, and uh, that's because... Uh, on top of my usual vocal issues, you know, um, worrying if my voice sounds too raspy because of my inhaled steroids, you know, for my, uh, for my asthma or whatever, wondering if, if I'm slurring or mispronouncing things because of my migraine meds, uh, I'm recording this episode with a cracked molar, uh, you know, and the pain's pretty intense. Um, so yeah, so I, I turned to my old friend, uh, Kratom. Uh, the pain started getting bad around this past Wednesday or Thursday, but my dentist won't be back in the office until late Monday morning. Uh, maybe it's time for another dentist. Uh, so in the meantime, I've just been, you know, abusing naproxen, Anbisol, and now, uh, now Kratom. I've known for a while that the molar was cracked. There wasn't any pain at first, uh, but they picked it up on a scan. Initially, they wanted to repair it with a crown, but then they suggested doing Invisalign first. 
I had straight teeth as a young kid, uh, but I ended up wearing braces in like my late teens, early 20s, after my wisdom teeth started coming in and shifting things around. Uh, but you know how that goes. The retainers break or get lost and uh, you know over the years. And eventually my teeth started to shift. And so my current dentist thought that my bite may have been putting too much stress on my teeth, and that may have even been, you know, what caused the tooth to crack. They wanted me to pay like 4000 bucks for Invisalign, and I'm like, yeah, let me think about that. I ended up using this, uh, this company called Smile Direct Club. Can't remember if I already talked about this on the show. And usually, you know, especially when it comes to my health, I, uh, I I try to approach things with a healthy skepticism and really do my research, but it seemed like a good company. They had uh, a lot of positive reviews, and it cost like half the price of uh, Invisalign. I hope it wasn't the wrong choice because there are some horror stories out there too. Uh, I was technically supposed to be done with the treatment. But after it was finished, I had a gap between two of my teeth that wasn't there before. So they made up new aligners for, you know, no additional cost. But it means wearing these things for like another 70 days. So I don't know what's going on. The cracked tooth may just finally have reached, you know, critical mass and finally became, uh, you know, a problem. Um, or maybe, you know, wearing those aligners has kind of aggravated or worsened the situation. Because these new aligners I'm wearing now feel like they might be putting pressure on the area, you know, on that specific area of my mouth. Uh, either way, horrible throbbing pain. Uh, we'll see what's going on, you know, this Monday, I guess. Uh, but as the hackneyed saying goes, the show must go on. Uh, I just heard Queen in my head. All right. So this first story is a good example of the potential pitfall I was talking about of not knowing which segment to put a certain uh, story in. Because this features Donald Trump commenting on Joe Biden, uh, but the remarks involve religion. So I guess that means it goes in the, uh, the religion segment. He's going to do things that nobody ever would ever think even possible because he's following the radical left agenda. Take away your guns, destroy your Second Amendment, no religion, no anything, hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God, he's against guns, he's against energy, our kind of energy. Uh, I don't think he's going to do too well in Ohio. If he did, would have a big story. He's not going to do well. So that was a very short clip, but there's kind of a lot to unpack there. On the one hand, you know, the comments he made, the allegations about Joe Biden are false. But even if they weren't, I mean, this goes to show just how um, how steeped in religion this country still is. And, uh, you know, if people think that atheists are complaining about nothing, they're just whining, you know, that this is a, a secular country or whatever. Um, and it's like a litmus test I used to bring up on the show is, I mean, can you realistically imagine an atheist candidate, you know, winning the presidency? And uh, I, I still can't, you know, hopefully someday. 
And of course, we could get into a whole discussion about whether or not certain past presidents were kind of closeted atheists. And some people even think that Donald Trump may be an atheist. It's just that he's so opportunistic, he knows how to appease his base by giving, you know, lip service to things like God, religion, the Bible, etc. And we've probably all heard of some of those polls that, you know, seem to illustrate just how much Americans uh, either dislike or distrust atheists. Uh, this one's from a long time ago, but there's a, a story in The Atlantic dating back to 2011. Study of the day, religious people distrust atheists as much as rapists. There's an article here directly from Gallup. Uh, this is dated 2012. Atheists, Muslims see most bias as presidential candidates. Then there's a similar article from 2017. Americans are skeptical of Muslim, comma, atheist candidates, but that could change, hopefully. You know, so it says, uh, younger Americans less likely to oppose Muslims, atheists running for office. That's probably true. I hope over time we will see a, a sea change in you know, that direction. And I might actually bookmark this. This looks interesting. Psychology Today has an article entitled The Distrust of Atheists, What Makes the Non-Religious Seem Less Trustworthy. Um, 2014 Salon article, The Numbers Are In, America Still Distrusts Atheists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm supposed to be plowing through the news stories here, so uh, apologies if this episode isn't quite as streamlined as I had promised. But I think, um, yeah, there's a funny thing that distrust of atheists, and even I experience that. It's funny, like, my friends are mostly, well, I don't talk about politics much with my friends, uh, but most of them seem to be left-leaning people. Um, most of them don't buy into organized religion, but they still have, you know, probably like their own airy-fairy beliefs in energy or, you know, uh, or just weird spiritual beliefs or whatever. And when you bring up atheism, you know, you can almost see the, you know, the look on their face like they just bit into a lemon. Um, even a lot of kind of, you know, left-leaning people uh, can still be, you know, distrustful of atheists. There seems to be like, oh, there's something triggering about that word athe uh, atheist. It's so loaded. It's been so demonized. And like I used to say, I think if you didn't use the, you know, if you didn't invoke the, the label atheist, and you just told someone what your beliefs are. Yeah, I don't really buy into organized religion because they all seem like, you know, they're man-made. You can look at the way they were kind of, the texts were cobbled together over time, how certain cultures borrowed from other cultures. You can see how the beliefs evolved. Um, and you could be like, yeah, you know, I, I don't claim to know for sure that there's not a god or an afterlife. But I kind of, you know, I, I have my doubts because of this. And, and, uh, and a lot of people would probably be like, yeah, that, that sounds sensible. You know, I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah. But use the word atheist. And it's like he just took a dump in the pool or something. Pardon the imagery. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I think when it comes to why do the religious distrust atheists. That's simple enough. God is at the center of their worldview. They've been indoctrinated into this supernatural belief system. And to them, 
God is the author of morality, of all that's good. So an atheist is someone who rejects all that. You know, how can you trust them? You know what I mean? And there might also be a kind of psychological thing, too, where they're afraid to have their beliefs questioned or tested. So there's something kind of threatening about having, you know, an, an atheist lurking about. <laughs> um, so anyway, to get back to that story, uh, I think that's exactly what Trump is doing. You know, he knows that Biden is ahead in the polls and that things aren't looking good for him. So he's trying to, you know, maintain his base by uh, drumming up fears that Biden is, you know, anti-God, anti-religion, anti-guns and all that. And just to put all my cards on the table, and most of you, if you're regular listeners, will already know this, I'm not a huge fan of Joe Biden. I actually used to uh, really like him. He has kind of a personal, you know, a really touching personal story regarding um, the tragedies in his life, uh, etc. And he seemed to have a kind of bumbling, folksy charm, you know, to him. The bumbling has kind of grown old and gotten worse, of course. And don't get me wrong, I want Biden to win. Um, I was going to say he's a hell of a lot better than Trump. I think there's a, a lot of parallels between Trump and Biden. But at least uh, Biden will be somewhat more, you know, aligned with my personal uh, politics or ideology or whatever, uh, perhaps not by much. And that brings me to the point I want to make. And that's that, you know, Trump paints this picture of Biden, that he's some radical leftist who's anti-religion, anti-God, anti-gun. And in reality, he's what, like center left at best? I don't know what he believes in his heart of hearts, but publicly at least, he's, you know, a self-proclaimed devout Catholic. Um, and wasn't it, uh, after one of the school shootings, um, when he recommended that instead of, you know, AR-15s, just buy a shotgun or whatever, you know, so he's, he's definitely not, uh, anti-gun. He might be for some kind of, you know, gun reform or whatever, but he's definitely not looking to take everyone's guns away, as far as I can tell. It's funny, if you look at his past, like, voting record, uh, the policies and whatnot he helped to, you know, champion and implement, uh, some of that stuff would make um, some conservatives, you know, blush or whatever. Really strict, you know, crime bills. He was basically the architect of the whole, you know, government uh, asset forfeiture program, etc. Uh, so de definitely not some, you know, far left figure, far from it. And it's funny, you know, I want Trump out of there. And uh, despite this, uh, you know, this big lead that Biden seems to have and that the writings on the wall that, you know, it looks like he's going to win. Um, I'm still, you know, I've been thinking to myself, if anyone could steal defeat from the jaws of victory, to turn the, the old saying on its head, uh, it, it would be Biden. Just some of the stuff he's been saying is just so wacky. You know, I think any of us who want, you know, are just looking for Trump to be gone and, you know, we'll take whatever you got. Biden, okay, okay. Uh, we'll deal with him once we're stuck with him, you know. <laughs> but, you know, 
most of us are probably crossing our, our fingers and are like, okay, okay, Joe, all you have to do is make it to the finish line. No big gaffes, you know, think before you speak. And of course, it's gaffamania. And I was talking about parallels between Trump and Biden. And one of them is, you know, these are both very thin-skinned guys who get, you know, very defensive very easily. And I see that with Biden. You know, if anyone challenges him at all, you know, during an interview, he gets upset and defensive. And that's when he's more likely to make a gaffe, you know. And that happened in a recent interview. Someone brought up the whole cognitive test thing. Because people have been suggesting that both Trump and Biden seem to be in, you know, state, in a state or states, uh, singular, plural, whatever, we're talking about two people, but they both seem to be, uh, I hope I'm not suffering from cognitive decline. They both, both seem to be displaying symptoms of cognitive decline. And of course, Trump was given a cognitive test. And uh, there's the whole thing where he was bragging about it, saying how no one had ever done as good as him on this test. And we find out that it's this very kind of elementary stuff, like uh, being shown a picture of an animal and having to be able to say, you know, is it an elephant or a giraffe? And that really basic stuff, you know what I mean? Uh, and he was bragging about uh, how well he did on it and how supposedly the person administering the test had commented how no one had ever done as well, you know? And so someone brought up, uh, an, an interviewer brought up um, whether, you know, Biden would be open to having a cognitive test. And he got all flustered and he mumbled something, you know, unintelligible, uh, the word cocaine kind of leaped out. And it's funny, it's one of those things, cause sometimes Biden will say things in a really kind of defensive, garbled way. But if you look at it after the fact, you can kind of see that he actually may have been making something of a rational point, if only he had worded it better, you know? Like the thing where, you know, he mumbled something about cocaine... Um, I think the point he was trying to make was is that he personally took offense at the idea that he should have to take an unnecessary test. And he was comparing it to, you know, if someone I think he might have been trying to use the interviewer, uh, the reporter or journalist interviewing him as an example. And I think he was trying to say, imagine if when you applied for your job, if you were asked to take a cocaine test, you know, he kind of compared it to that and how, you know, being asked to take a, a test before, you know, you're approved for a job can be insulting or, or unnecessary or something. But even if that was the point he was trying to make, it's like, let go of your ego, man. There's plenty of people who do have to take drug tests. You know what I mean? And when we're talking about a position as important as, you know, a, a high-ranking political office, the uh, none higher than, you know, commander-in-chief, um, if you're going to be the leader of the country, um, doesn't it make sense that you might have to? And they do. There's a lot of things, a lot of ways that um, a presidential candidate, you know, is vetted. Um, taking a simple cognitive test that, you know, if you're of sound mind should be rather easy to pass. I mean, what are you afraid of? You know, 
why be so insulted and defensive? I mean, I guess for a second to play devil's advocate against the point I just made, um, I can see in a way how it might be insulting if it's a, a test that, you know, even a child could, you know, easily pass or whatever. Um, if you're a grown adult, you know, who has a lifetime of responsibility and service under your belt and you're being asked to take take this very kind of simplistic test, I can see how that might, you know, be kind of offensive. But once again, it's like, put your ego aside. It's not just about you. It's about all of us. You know, I mean, you're striving for the most important office in the land. And it's right and responsible for people to want to make sure that the person who's going to be wielding that power is of sound mind and that they're cognitively capable of performing their duties, you know? Duties. Huh. Well, <laughs> anyway, uh, maybe I'll play that cocaine clip. Uh, now, this this episode is definitely not going to be monetized on, get monetized on YouTube. Uh, chances are it wouldn't anyway, but with the uh, the generous mentions of, of illicit drugs and whatnot. But uh, here it is. Mr. Vice President, your opponent in this election, President Trump, has made your mental state a campaign topic. And when asked in June if you'd been tested um, for cognitive decline, you've responded that you're constantly tested in, in, in effect because you're in situations like this on the campaign trail. But please clarify specifically, have you taken a cognitive no, test. I haven't taken a test. Why the hell would I take a test? Come on, man. That's like saying you, before you got in this program, you take a test where you're taking cocaine or not. What do you think, huh? Are, are you a junkie? What do you say? So there it is. And uh, there was another recent kind of flub he made where it's another thing where there might have been something of a rational point, you know, or it wouldn't have seemed as offensive if he just worded it differently. But he said something to the effect that the Latino community is diverse, unlike African-Americans or the African-American community. And he's catching hell for that now. And so people are starting to wonder if these blunders are going to eat away at that lead he has, you know? And um, there's been speculation in the media about whether or not, you know, the people in his camp are trying to stare him away from debating, possibly not debating at all, and he might be able to get away with that because the lead is so large, you know? But that would certainly be strange if there wasn't, you know, if there weren't any presidential debates. But I think the point he was trying to make is that because, Hispa you know, there's so many different Hispanic people. And I sometimes get confused. I think a lot of people do about when to use the term Hispanic, when to use Latino. Uh, sometimes they can be, you know, interchangeable. But I think Hispanic refers to people who are, you know, from or descended from, you know, Spanish speaking communities. And Latino has to do with uh, people who are from, you know, Latin America or descended fr from people who are from Latin America. But anyway, you know, because there's so many different 
Hispanic groups and communities out there. Uh, take Cuban Americans, for instance. They tend to have a strong anti-communist bent because everything you know their people went through with Castro, etc. Well, other groups tend to have a more left-leaning um, inclination or bent. Um, for their own reasons, maybe, you know, especially when it comes to immigration and things like that. And maybe you can argue, or, you know, this is what uh, Biden was implying, that African-Americans, um, of course, there are more recent African uh, immigrants, uh, people from Nigeria, other parts of Africa, but African-Americans have a long shared history Um in this country. And so maybe in a, in a way, they're not as splintered into, you know, as many different groups under this one umbrella term or, or whatever. I don't know, but I think he was going for something like that. But in characteristic Biden style, you know, it, it came out kind of strangely garbled and offensive, you know. But do you like how the religion segment quickly turned into the politics uh, segment? Um, anyway, let's get back to uh, the religious news stories. So next we have a story involving Jerry Falwell Jr. And you might remember uh, Jerry Falwell uh, Sr., uh, one of my personal heroes, the late great Christopher Hitchens, I believe he used to refer to uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. as uh, a Chaucerian fraud and uh, many other unflattering terms as well. But uh, anyway, so yeah, Jerry Falwell Sr. Uh, was a famous uh, televangelist. Um, I believe he was the founder, right, of uh, Liberty University. And so upon Jerry Falwell Sr.'s death, his, uh, his son, Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, was appointed the president of Liberty University. And then on August 7th, so just yesterday as I'm recording this, uh, the board requ requested that he take an indefinite leave of absence. And, uh, yeah, so he's kind of a strange dude, and he's been caught up in kind of like his father, multiple scandals and controversies or whatever. Um, there was one, remember, this might have been several years ago. Um, it was speculated that he had kind of a, a bizarre relationship with, uh, with a certain pool boy, and it also involved his wife. Um, but now, I think he actually published the photo. I, I think I'm, I'm, I don't know if it was Instagram or what, but he published the photo of him. And I think it was on a private yacht, uh, standing next to, uh, an attractive young woman. And he uh, has kind of has his arm around her waist. And both of them look like they're holding, you know, alcoholic beverages. And both of them have their shorts partially unbuttoned or pants, whatever. And yeah, so it's weird. so basically this guy, Jerry Falwell Jr., who's supposed to be, you know, the staunch Christian, the president of a Christian university, uh, is standing there with his arm around some chick who isn't his wife, and his pants are partially unbuttoned. You know, he's holding a drink and you can see his underwear. Uh, I think his excuse or explanation, it might have been in the original post, 
I've often heard about the Trailer Park Boys, and supposedly it's a really good comedy show. It's one of those things I've always meant to check it out, but I never have. I was a big, like, uh, Kids in the Hall fan. Um, and I, I'd probably like it from what I hear. But anyway, he was saying that on this private yacht, they were having some kind of Trailer Park Boys-themed party, and that's why, you know, his pants were partially unbuttoned or whatever. But uh, someone was was asking for him to st- obviously the board requested that he take an indefinite leave of absence. But I have um, uh, some video and audio here, uh, the video for the YouTube version, of course, of uh, I think some conservative figure asking for his you know resignation. Well, you've heard of the expression, do as I say, not as I do. Well, one of the nation's leading evangelical voices is apologizing for something he did that is an apparent violation of the honor code he holds his students to. Jerry Falwell Jr. posted a photo of himself in unzipped pants with one arm around a woman and the other holding a glass with dark liquid, which he described as, quote, black water. Falwell explained in a radio interview that it was all in good fun. You know, it was weird because she could she was she's pregnant, so she couldn't get her she couldn't get her pants up, and so I was like trying to like my I had on a pair of jeans that I haven't worn in a long time, so I couldn't get mine zipped either, and so and so I just put my belly I just put my belly out like hers, and it was just um she's my wife's assistant and she's a sweetheart, and I should never put it up because it embarrassed her. Because, um, anyway, I, I've apologized to everybody, and I promised my kids I'm going to try to be. I'm going to try to be a good boy from here on out. Well, that apology may not be enough. Falwell is the head of Liberty University, which maintains a strict code of ethics banning lewd lyrics, sexual content, and immodest dress, among other things. And this isn't the first time that Falwell Jr. has caused a scandal. He was urged to step down after making a blackface joke. One member of the university's advisory board, Congressman Mark Walker, tweeted that he was appalled by Falwell's behavior and is calling on him to resign. And Congressman Walker is joining me now. Um, sir, thanks for coming on to talk about this. You you are calling for him to resign. Tell us why. Uh, Brianna, I just think that there is a code that leaders have to live by, especially when you are leading the largest Christian evangelical university in the country. Now, Jerry Jr., Jerry Falwell Jr., deserves a lot of credit for building Liberty University to what it is today. But there's been a pattern of behavior that's not becoming to what that school's code of conduct is. In fact, on the property itself, his brother Jonathan Falwell pastors one of the largest churches in the country, a a church that his father Jerry Sr., Jerry Falwell Sr., founded many years ago. So this pattern of behavior has become troubling, and I believe, whether it's a leave of absence or stepping down, I believe his behavior, the pattern of it, is warranted this. Even if you listen to his comments on the radio show, he apologized for embarrassing the young lady. He did not apologize to the thousands of alumni, the students, the faculty, and many others who hold Liberty University in a high esteem. And, um, I mean, why do you think there is this pattern of behavior? What do you think is going on here? It's very troubling. I, you know, I was a pastor for 16 years myself before running for the United States Congress uh, almost seven years ago. Uh, I, I am concerned about it. I, I don't want to speculate. I don't know his heart. I don't know if there's other things going on. 
but this is a pattern that is it's over the last maybe two to three years has really come to the forefront and and as a pastor as I was just referencing every meeting that I try to have I try to have a redemptive element that runs through it I hope that's how the oh my god no pun intended uh, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't subject myself or you guys to the uh, the rest of that. That was like as boring as watching paint dry, and and upon listening to that, I, I find uh, I'm far more sympathetic towards <laughs> Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, yeah, obviously there's some major hypocrisy going on here, uh, but. Uh, just the the portrait of uh, he comes off as this kind of lovable mess up you know uh with his arm around kind of a hot young girl and you know stumbling through a radio interview <laughs> i'm not trying to downplay all the you know the possible damage the guy has done by uh beating the drum for conservative christianity and all that but you know kind of a fun story and I found uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., you know, his behavior much more interesting and sympathetic than listening to that guy uh, talk about why Jerry Falwell Jr. is, you know, beyond the pale or whatever. But okay, on to the next story. So you guys have probably all heard about the uh, demon semen story, and I might as well cover it too, though. Um, so there's this... Uh, I don't even know how how to describe her. But this medical doctor from Nigeria who despite her, you know, her medical education uh embraces some really far out superstitious um dangerous ideas. And she's a strong supporter of Donald Trump and I believe the Trumps in return have, you know, shown her support as well. But I'm reading this from the Daily Beast and it dates to uh, July 29th. And so it's entitled Trump doubles down on demon sperm doc. And here's a quote from Trump. I guess Twitter took them off and I think Facebook took them off. I don't know why. I think they're very respected doctors. So here it goes. The president of the United States doubled down on his support of a doctor's quote-unquote summit, peddling the debunked COVID-19 drug hydroxychloroquine. Just as social media companies cracked down on the viral coronavirus disinformation that came out of the event. And so, yeah, I don't know the whole story on hydroxychloroquine. I wonder if just by, hopefully just by mentioning this, I don't end up getting uh, my YouTube channel shut down or something. Because uh, I think um, YouTube's spooky algorithm is coming after anything that can possibly seem like uh, COVID disinformation, even if it's, you know... Um, a video that, to the contrary, is actually trying to shed light on the uh, the pseudoscience out there. Um, but I think with hydroxychloroquine, in, in some ways it actually can be beneficial to some degree in certain circumstances, but it is definitely not, not a cure for uh, COVID-19. Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube removed a viral video of the event, which had garnered millions of views after President Trump and others retweeted the clip. Squarespace also suspended the website for America's frontline doctors, which put on the event. The video featured the eccentric Dr. Stella Emanuel, 
who claim that the controversial anti-malaria drug hydroxychloroquine was a cure, quote-unquote cure, for COVID-19 and that masks aren't necessary, was pulled from platforms for sharing misinformation about the disease. Twitter also briefly locked the Twitter account of the president's son, Donald Trump Jr., when he tweeted the video and called it a quote-unquote must-watch. So I'll now play a clip from the event which features Dr. Uh, Stella Emanuel um, unleashing or embarking on this kind of bizarre rant. Have people calling me Dr. Stella? There's a witch off my house doing this. There's a witch. I would have gone to do surgery on witchcraft. I was very impressed with her and other doctors that stood with her, but certainly you could put her up and let her have a voice. There are witches in our neighborhoods, witches at our jobs. You don't like the good men or the good women. You always end up being hooked up with witches and wizards, and witches and wizards are always following you. You don't know that there are witches at your job. The witches in your office are rising. They come after you and they go higher because they are working this witchcraft and they are going higher and they are stealing your position. And you're sitting there going, I love you with the love of the Lord. So while you're busy struggling, they've taken your money and given it to the warlock called Jay-Z. Your relative comes to live with you. And you're like, well, she's my mom. If my mom is a witch and I start praying, you will die. It's me that will tell you that your mom is a witch. It's not me. It's not me. I'll open my mouth and tell you that your mother is a witch. Hallelujah. Because sometimes people, little children, big children, which I'm telling you, there are ones that are really little. How a young lady came to our ministry, white lady. She was dating this young white guy. And she said, the, in Louisiana, she said, there will be, she said the boy fragmented his soul into her so that she could practice witchcraft with him because they, they came from families of witches. This boy will walk around and see people and will do this. And they'll go into a heart attack. Witches come here all the time. I remember one lady came here. She was supposed to be a pastor. I was sitting in the room there when she walked in through the door. Demons walked in with her. And he hit me like poof. And then the Lord told me it was Jezebel witchcraft. I told her. I said, the spirit of Jezebel witchcraft. That's what you're dealing with. She got very offended. There are people that you slept with people in the past. And they fragmented themselves and put inside of you. Evil deposits came inside of you. Serpentine spirits swimming inside of you. Witchcraft spirits swimming inside of you. Begin to copper the witchcraft, the marine. Begin to copper the serpentine spirit. That way deposit in your body. Get tissue, cough it out. From the witchcraft covers. Recover my finances. If the person that is the witch is your relative, what are you going to do? If you marry somebody and he's a witch, what are you going to do? You see, God is not going to tell you to divorce your witch or your wizard. I'm not saying go around feeling like, oh, you witch, you're witch. The ones that you think are witches are not. And so, although still an epic clip in its own right, uh, I originally intended to uh, download the clip of her talking about the demon sperm. Uh, pardon the, uh, the graphic uh, language or imagery. But... Um, yeah, she goes on. I think it's hard to tell with her accent. She might even talk about. Uh, I was gonna say succubuses, but I believe the plural of, of succubus is succubi. You know, these uh, in, in medieval belief, there is the idea of the succubus and the incubus. Uh, the incubus was the male form. The succubus was the female form, and they basically they're these kind of sexual demons that prey on you while you while you sleep. And so she went on a whole another rant about that where she talks about uh you know 
um, succubuses and demon semen or whatever. Succubi, sorry about that. But, you know, this is, it's so funny and, and how, you know, bizarre and outrageous it is. But it's, uh, it's really disturbing when you stop to think that this kind of thinking is getting people killed over in Africa. Um, there's a disturbing trend of these kind of um, Christian extremists over in Africa uh, killing people in the, in the modern era here in the year 2020. There are still people being killed for witchcraft. And that it's an all too common uh, phenomenon. I was going to quickly cover a story about how the Boston Marathon bomber had his death sentence overturned, but still, after all this time, just thinking about that incident and the people who perpetrated it, you know, it still fills me with such disgust and anger. I don't even want to do them the favor of you know mentioning his name on the show. Uh, because, of course, you know, only one of them is still around. The other one, uh, I, was, I was about to, you know, darkly laugh. The younger brother accidentally uh, drove over the uh, the older brother. Uh, I think uh, after the uh, older brother may have already been shot or something like that. I forget. But, yeah, it just bums me out thinking about that. Uh, but that was going to go into the religious uh, news story section because obviously the tie-in, well, you know, with um, Islamic extremism. And I guess in a sense I did just quickly cover it. Uh, okay. And there's another story that didn't quite make the cut. Uh, here in the New England area, a statue of the Virgin Mary was. Uh, desecrated i think more than once i'm looking at the pictures here one shows the statue with a trash barrel over its head and another one uh, shows it with uh the word idol written vertically uh i noticed these things graphic design degree uh, on uh, on the statue i remember thinking i'm like idol was it like a a roaming band of protestants but uh, i also remember thinking I'm like, oh, this is pretty tame, you know, because I was comparing it to those, like, uh, wild statue scenes from the uh, first and third Exorcist movies. Uh, and that was, it looks like it was in Dorchester, and that was back in the uh, middle of July. All right, but I guess now we should move on to the politics segment of the show. So firstly, I wanted to talk about that additional $600 in federal aid that was kind of shoring up uh, state unemployment during this uh, this pandemic. And I was inspired to talk about this because I have some personal experience. As you'll probably know if you're a regular listener, construction work was temporarily banned uh, during the, the COVID lockdown. And so I was temporarily furloughed you know, or laid off, whatever the proper term is. Uh, with the understanding that once the restrictions on construction were lifted, I would go, you know, right back to work. And so, yeah, uh, every week, you know, you would file for your, uh, for your state unemployment. And on top of that, you would receive uh, $600 a week in, you know, federal aid. And right off the bat, this seemed a little too good to be true, you know, uh, for me. Because, 
let's say if you were someone who made under $600 a week to start with, you know, you would make um, half of what you would usually make, you know, via state unemployment, and then $600 on top of that. So if that's the situation you were in, you know, that's pretty good, making more money than usual, staying home. You know what I mean? And I remember wondering, you know, why they were doing this. Why was it so, I mean, I say so generous, but it's all relative. You know what I mean? There might be some people who, well, I think, uh, I'm horrible at math here, but I think the requirement was that you had to make under 75000 70000 something like that in order to, uh, to qualify. So I don't know if there were people out there who were getting less than they would usually make. But yeah, I mean, like I said, if you usually make um, 600 or under, you know, you're going to be making more under this, you know, this aid program. Um, and uh, yeah, I was trying to figure out why they were doing this. It seemed a little too generous. But my thinking is, my guess is probably that it was just more expedient to go with one fixed payment amount across the board, 600 in additional welfare benefits uh, to everyone below a certain, you know, income level, that that was probably easier and quicker than trying to figure out what each individual should get based on their personal income, you know. And so that federal aid program that just ran out expired this past uh, Friday, I believe. For me, it ended a long time ago. Uh, the ban on construction was lifted here in Massachusetts on June. It was either June 18th or 19th. And uh, I, I went right back to work when I was called. You know what I mean? Uh, I, maybe I kind of daydreamed or fantasized about saying, no, nah, I think I'm just going to stay home. And, uh, and keep collecting this, you know what I mean? But that brings me to uh, my point, because there was something I was confused about. And uh, I, I knew this was going to happen, but people, especially on the right, uh, came to the conclusion that paying someone more to stay home than what they would make if they went back to work, that's going to kind of disincentivize people, you know, and I forget David Pakman's term for it, but I've discussed this phenomenon before on this show. You know, when conservatives seem to have this kind of stern or disappointed dad kind of uh, attitude towards people and social programs that, you know, you should pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. You know, there shouldn't be any uh, generous um, social programs or whatever. And so this, I mean, I saw this coming from the beginning that at some point, um, you know, conservatives, especially fiscal conservatives are going to be saying, uh, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, we shouldn't be rewarding people by paying them more to stay home. You know what I mean? And I knew that, you know, the party was going to end it sometime. And that brings us to the present where, um, in Congress, the two sides of the aisle are still you know, butting heads are at an impasse uh, regarding, you know, finalizing a, a new stimulus package. Um, and so th this is the type of thing that really, you know, just makes people hate politicians. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, there's a lot of people out there who are in need and who are relying on, you know, 
these programs. And these politicians, many of them millionaires, I believe Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell are both uh, millionaires. You know, so you have these rich politicians uh, arguing over whether or not, you know, the plebs deserve uh, $600 or whatever, you know what I mean? And so one of the points that's holding things up that they're unable to come to an agreement on is whether or not to continue the $600 a week additional unemployment um, benefits. The Dems want to keep it going. Uh, The Republicans want to slash the amount. They were saying down to 200, uh, which is a significant reduction. And at that reduced amount, there's more of a chance that people are going to end up making less, uh, you know, being out of work than they would uh, back at work. And under normal circumstances, you know, the thinking behind programs like unemployment is um, they're intentionally giving you less than you would uh, normally make. Um, The thinking behind it, uh, you know, that people should be incentivized to keep looking for work um, and not feel like they can live off of this government program. But in the case of COVID, you know, that's not the person's fault. You know, it's not their fault that uh, a government lockdown put their life on hold, you know what I mean, and uh, temporarily put them out of work. Uh, I think people in this situation deserve at least what they were normally making, you know. But the thing I was kind of confused about was, you know, were they slashing the money because they thought people were gaming the system, you know, um, opting to stay home and keep collecting that cash, you know, instead of going back to work? Or was it just a matter of principle that they didn't like the idea of people getting more money to stay home than if they went back to work or whatever. And it was just that kind of stern dad thing. And it confused me because in my personal experience, when I would go every week to the Massachusetts unemployment you know, website, um, there's a stipulation, I think maybe on the first page, that if you are unemployed because of COVID-19, that you didn't have to jump through the usual job search hoops that people did under, you know, normal conditions. So you didn't have to prove that, you know, you submitted a resume or that you wanted and you know, applied for work somewhere. Um, the deal was, as long as you stayed in touch with your employer and you were willing to go back to work, once the restrictions were lifted, you were eligible for that extra 600. But despite that, and it's kind of weird, I don't know if it was a glitchy or weird redundant thing with the Massachusetts uh, system or you know their website, but you did have to perform a kind of you know mini little uh, job search thing. Uh, well, job search is probably the uh, the wrong term, but you did have to answer three questions, and that just reminded me of uh, Monty Python in the uh, Holy Grail. But uh, answer me these questions three. But there were there are three questions you had to answer before you could go on to the next page and keep you know applying for that week's benefits. They would ask you, were you able to work? 
Were you willing to work? Were you offered work? So something like that, not necessarily in that order,、uh, but you had to answer those three questions a certain way, and then you had to fill in a kind of description box, where you would say something to the effect that no work because of COVID nineteen, you know, and then you had to detail how you stayed in touch with your employer via phone, in person, whatever it is. So you would do all that. And then click submit, and then magically, you know, you get your six hundred from the Fed plus your、uh, state unemployment benefits deposited into your、uh, bank account or whatever. And so maybe I'm missing something, but the impression I got was that if your employer called you back to work and you didn't go, that、uh, you wouldn't be eligible for those unemployment benefits, you know. Also, I was recently talking to a family member about this. I think、uh, they were telling me that you know that there could also be situations where, for whatever reason, your boss doesn't call you back. Maybe you know the business goes under, or I don't, I don't know what. So, in a case like that, you probably could just stay home and keep collecting those, you know, benefits, the extra six hundred a week and all. And then I know、um, maybe near like the middle of the lockdown or something, you know, they eventually、uh, extended the eligibility of those benefits to gig workers as well. And so I'm not sure how this, you know, COVID unemployment situation works for gig workers if they could potentially game the system and just keep, you know, collecting.、Uh, but yeah, when I thought about it, just you know. As it applied to my situation, I'm like, "What are you worried about? You know, why are you worried about whether I want to go back to work or not? Because if it's the case that I get called back to work and I refuse, you know,、um, I would most likely lose those benefits anyway. So why does whether or not I want to, you know, even factor into it?" Yeah, but once again, you know, I, I kind of knew it was just too good to be true. I, I knew that party was going to <laughs> eventually end, and that would probably be、uh, the Republicans who put the kibosh on it. You know, but it's ridiculous that they haven't been able to come to an agreement yet. You know, a bunch of supposedly grown adults,、um, and there's a nation wrestling a pandemic and people who need help. And just trying to be charitable, I hope that there are some people on either side who are actually driven by principle and whose top priority really is to help American people who are struggling financially right now. You know, I, is that too much to ask?、Uh, I I don't know. Bunch of career politicians playing、uh, chicken.、Uh, they were they were supposed to.、Uh, You know, it sounded like they kind of set a deadline for themselves of this past Friday,、uh, and that if they didn't come to agreement by Friday, they weren't going to go home for their break or whatever it is.、Uh, and it looks like they're they're still at an impasse. And the latest news is that Donald Trump signed an executive order that would give people. You know, kind of like a compromise, and you know, I'll give credit where credit is due.、Um, you know, instead of the instead of as little as two hundred or as much as six hundred, the this executive order proposes four hundred 
dollars in federal unemployment aid per week, you know, on top of uh, your regular unemployment from the state. So I I think that's not bad. But I think they're saying, you know, this uh, executive order, it doesn't, you know, just automatically go into effect. It, It has to pass first. Another problem is how they stuff all these bills, you know, so sometimes simple things that should be easy to agree on, you know, get held up. I don't know why they couldn't at least, you know, just agree on the 1200, maybe write that up as a separate bill or something and quickly get that out to the American people. Um, I don't know. And I actually just came across an article on that executive order. And it's from CNN. And I know, I know, CNN, the, the mortal enemy of Donald Trump. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's entitled, Trump signs executive actions after stimulus talks break down on Capitol Hill. President Donald Trump tried to assert executive power by signing four actions on coronavirus relief Saturday, one of which will provide as much as $400 in enhanced unemployment benefits after Democrats and the White House were unable to reach an agreement on a stimulus bill this week. But that memorandum on enhanced unemployment benefits, 25% of which states are being asked to cover, has more strings attached than the White House acknowledged and is seen as a cumbersome effort that may not help a lot of the unemployed. The other three actions he signed include a memorandum on a payroll tax holiday for Americans earning less than $100,000 a year, an executive order on quote-unquote assistance to renters and homeowners, and a memorandum on deferring student loan payments. So here's a quote from Donald Trump, and I'm pretty sure I do a horrible Trump impersonation, so I'll just try to do a kind of straight reading here. Uh, I'm taking action to provide an additional or extra $400 a week and expanded benefits $400. I don't know if something's, you know, going over my head here or um, if that's redundant. Uh, Let me see. Anyway, onward. Uh, That's generous, but we want to take care of our people. Trump said about his memorandum on unemployment benefits at his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. I've never been a golf guy, so I I don't really, you know, I don't understand the appeal. Um, That's not me taking a shot at people who do enjoy it. I guess, you know, an outdoor activity, the fresh air, maybe it kind of relaxes you and focuses you, you know. I don't know. But I've never been big on golf. But, um... (sighs) Pre- presidents in golf, man, it's it's usually always when something, you know, <laughs> uh, cataclysmic is going down, you know, they're off, they're off golfing somewhere. Um, anyway, but it's more complicated than that. And this isn't Trump. This is uh, back to the writer of the article. Uh, a state must agree to enter into a financial arrangement with the federal government for any unemployed person living there to get any of the additional benefits. And the federal government is requiring states to pick up the tab for 25% or $100 of the 400 additional benefit each person may be able to receive weekly and additional aid. I think a neighbor out there is using a weed whacker, but I got to get this episode out, man. So once again, the show must go on. Uh, so I'll continue reading. Up to $44 billion from the Disaster Relief Fund would be made available for quote-unquote lost wage assistance to supplement state payments, according to the memorandum issued by the White House shortly after Trump's news conference. 
But when asked about the president's executive action asking states to pay 25% of the 400 unemployment relief, an official from a northeastern state run by a Democratic governor laughed. We don't have that money, the official said. And I know it might have seemed like I was patting Donald Trump on the back when I was talking about that executive order that would offer an additional $400 a week in unemployment benefits. And maybe in a way, reflexively, I was, you know, because things have been so stalled in Congress uh, and people are out there waiting for monetary relief because they're in a bad way. When all of a sudden, you know, you hear that... Um, there's been an executive order and it's going to offer people $400 you know, in addition to their state unemployment a week. There is some kind of you know, automatic sense of relief because you're thinking, well, at least it's better than the 200 that the, uh, the Republicans wanted. Um, but it's not the 600 uh, that people were getting. And so there is going to be a drop in financial uh, assistance. You know what I mean? Uh, but at least it's something. Um, and maybe I'm being too uncharitable here, but I always assume that things are calculated with Donald Trump. And, you know, this kind of goes all the way back to ancient Rome, you know, bread and circuses, throw something to the plebs to win them over. You know what I mean? Um, and I think Trump sees the writing on the wall with Biden leading, etc. And, and so I had been wondering, and once again, maybe this is too cynical, that I wonder if the Republicans in Congress to some degree were intentionally trying to uh, stall things, you know, so Trump could come in and appear to save the day, you know, writing an executive order. Um that might be too conspiratorially minded or too cynical on my part, uh, but the thought did cross my mind. But once again, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. This is a very unscripted episode, you know what I mean? Um, so I'm not trying to, you know, intentionally put any kind of unsubstantiated conspiracy theories or rumors out there. That's just uh, me thinking aloud. So let me refer to my notes. What other topics do I have down here uh, under politics? Oh, yeah, I just wrote Crowder. Um, there's a couple of stories here that, you know, kind of got under my skin or caught my attention, but I didn't pull any, you know, video or audio for them. So I saw a couple of different content creators respond to this uh, Steven Crowder video. And, it, yeah, it really got under my skin. Uh, so it was basically... Steven Crowder out on the streets with his crew kind of trolling for uh, for show fodder or content or whatever. And so he sees this uh, this black artist who's drawing a mural. And it's, yeah, it's just some black dude, uh, pretty jacked, uh, shirt off, almost looks like he's wearing uh, almost like a turban or a do-rag or something. Uh, and he seemed to be a really talented artist. And so he was drawing a uh, or painting a portrait of someone. And um, as far as I could tell, it looked like it was a boarded up building. And it looked like, you know, plywood was up over the windows or whatever. Um, it, it looks like <laughs> I, I probably don't need to go into this much detail or whatever. 
but it kind of looked like it had a different texture than plywood. And I say that as someone who's all too familiar with plywood, given the nature of my, uh, my day job. But now when I think about it, you know, the guy may have primed the plywood so it was easier to, uh, to paint over. But anyway, so Crowder rolls up on this guy, starts asking him questions. At first, the guy is really pleasant and, and friendly, uh, very happy to answer uh, Crowder's questions. So yeah, he was just being really easygoing and kind of painting while he's talking. But things start to quickly deteriorate as uh, Crowder's questions become more and more, you know, pointed. And so he starts off by asking him, you know, who is the portrait of? I think that's a very, you know, innocent and understandable question. Um, and so the guy goes into how, um, I forget some of the details, but it was basically a portrait of a local guy. And I don't know if the guy died, if he was uh, imprisoned or what what it was, but he was a, a well-known figure who had had some kind of uh, run-in with the, with the police or whatever. But then Crowder seems to be kind of, you know, poking the bear, so to speak, you know, intentionally asking kind of antagonizing questions. He starts asking the guy things like, do you have permission to be painting this mural? And there's something ugly about his tone, too. You know, it's not like he's innocently asking. Um, you can tell he's kind of out, like there's a negative tone of voice there. Like he's either trying to be antagonistic intentionally or that, you know, it, it seems like there's contempt in his voice or something. And like I was saying, you know, it looked like the storefront was boarded up. So the guy seemed to be just painting this mural over temporary boarding or something like that, as far as I could tell. I mean, I could see if maybe the business was open and the guy was drawing a big dick on the window or something while people are in there, you know, drinking coffee or whatever. But if uh, I was a store owner, I could probably care less if my place was boarded up and someone was painting on the temporary plywood or whatever it was. You know what I mean? Like if someone called me because of that and asked me to get out of bed and come down, I'd be like, let me sleep, man. Why the hell do I care if someone's painting on plywood or whatever? You know what I mean? Um, but if his goal was to antagonize the guy and get a rise out of him, he eventually got his wish. He was just asking these really kind of uptight, dickish, you know, questions. And even the nicest person is eventually going to snap if you keep, you know, poking them and, and uh, antagonizing them. And there's even times when Crowder gets his phone out and kind of, you know, threatens to call the, the police, you know. And um, eventually this dude, he almost reminds me of the YouTuber uh, Nerdrotic. Uh, there's this uh, kind of middle-aged YouTuber who uh, owns a comic book store and... Uh, kind of rails against uh, SJWs and what they're doing to comic books and uh, TV shows or whatever, you know what I mean? But the guy has like a really long beard and glasses and the guy kind of reminded me of uh, that dude from uh, Nerdrotic or whatever. Um, but the guy was, uh, he was somehow involved in the community and something with, you know, having to do with uh, a program with artists in the community and people painting murals. So he kind of comes over and, you know, kind of like stands up for, for the guy, uh, for the artist who's painting the mural. And um, 
Crowder starts being a dick to that guy too. Crowder uh, kind of demands the the phone number of the person who owns the building so he can call them, you know. Like, but it's funny. Um, so it seemed like yeah, Crowder was there because he wanted content and he wanted to stir shit. You know what I mean? And uh, but you could tell he got kind of you know bitter. It it, it got to him when he started getting pushback. Um, because, and I thought it was funny. It was very uh, kind of cathartic uh, to see and hear this guy, like the artist, start taking like personal shots at uh, Crowder. Because Crowder was wearing this like kind of bulky thermal, one of those kind of waffle pattern thermal, you know, long sleeve shirts you wear in the winter, but it was the middle of the summer. So the guy who was so nice and polite at the beginning, he's like, it's the middle of summer. And you're wearing a thermal shirt, you know, what's going on, you know, this kind of thing. It's kind of because Crowder, um, you know, just trying to be honest, give credit where credit is due. He does, he looks like he lifts weights. He looks like he's probably pretty jacked. I, I don't know if he's cut or not, but it reminds me of how before I got rid of my extra weight, like sometimes I would even wear like long sleeve stuff in the summer or to parties because I thought, you know, it kind of hide my my uh, torso or my midriff or whatever. Uh, so I don't know if it was something like that or if Crowder's just, you know, a weirdo. But yeah, it was the middle of the summer and he was wearing like, uh, I don't know if he's wearing like jeans and like a thermal long sleeve shirt. And then the guy starts uh, telling him how he looks like a busted up Superman or something with his with his haircut or whatever. So he went after like Crowder's appearance. You could tell Crowder was like, kind of fuming and getting pissed he, he likes dishing it out but he doesn't like taking it uh but it was just like an ugly scene all around i think stephen crowder is a dick so yeah that was a thing and so there's one story i found to be pretty wild uh, i don't know if you guys remember the whole bundy standoff not a uh, al bundy but uh there's this uh family of ranchers who are kind of like pretty you know almost like far right uh, kind of anti-government types and they had a standoff with the with the feds because um, I think they were letting their animals graze on federally owned land or something like that and um, and so I think often when people think of you know these far-right anti-government types um, these kind of militia type of guys they think maybe they kind of have you know, racist or white supremacist, you know, leanings or whatever. So I thought it was kind of strangely refreshing and almost uplifting when uh, Eamon Bundy came out in support of Black Lives Matter. Uh, and he even, um, he even kind of defends Antifa. Uh, and I didn't, uh, pull any clips for this, but I might just quickly play this on my iPad and hope that um, my mic can pick it up well enough. Uh, because I simply was going to go to a rally with the Black Lives Matter in support of defunding the police because, yes, the police need to be defunded. And anybody who don't understand that is just somehow must be, I mean, I, I'm trying not to be, you know, too poignant here but must have a problem you must have a problem in your mind if you think that somehow the black lives matter is more dangerous than the police you must have a problem in your mind if you think that antifa is the one going to take your freedom 
you must have a problem in your mind. You must not, you must be thinking, uh, you know, you must be hypnotized by these uh, social media code words or by, you know, uh, conservative talk show hosts that basically put these keywords in your mind to, to make it so that you think certain things about certain terms such as defund the police. No, defund the police is the correct thing to do. They become a huge authoritarian bureaucracy that will be the, the, the bureaucracy or the people that take away our liberty. They... Yeah, so that's pretty wild. And I think I've heard it said before that, you know, if you go far enough left or far enough right, you know, you, you end up meeting, you know what I mean? So, uh, but I don't know, I, I found it, uh, you know, in this crazy world, like I found there to be something almost kind of comforting that this kind of far right cowboy looking dude, you know, was willing to offer a hand in solidarity to a black movement, you know what I mean? Uh, there was something strangely nice about that. And then I wasn't sure if this next story belonged in the politics section, but I guess it does in a way because I think, you know, Jordan Peterson is part of that left versus right culture war in a sense. And uh, you probably remember not too long ago that, you know, I spoke about how Jordan Peterson finally poked his head up. Remember, we knew that he had uh, been struggling with benzodiazepine addiction and that he and his family, or at least he and his daughter, had gone to Russia w to a facility where hopefully he could quit cold turkey. And, and then, you know, everyone is wondering where in the world is Jordan B. Peterson? And then, uh, and what the hell was that? And then, you know, he finally poked his head up again. And he did that interview with his daughter. And I don't know when that came out. I don't know if that was two months ago or, or what, but I had only recently stumbled upon it. Um, maybe, you know, whenever that episode was, maybe two or three weeks back or whatever. Um, and you guys know me. I've kind of a complicated take on Jordan Peterson. I think he's an interesting guy. I think he's he does have a certain uh, charisma about him, and he's kind of engaging to listen to. Um, and I like the topics they delves into, like uh, symbolism, Jungian psychology, uh, mythology, that kind of stuff. Um, but I disagree with him on other key things, like. Uh, his kind of slippery approach to things like God and truth, uh, that weird take of his on women in the workplace. And I think, you know, beneath the um, kind of highfalutin psychoanalytical jargon, you know, is beneath that exterior, he's basically a social conservative. You know what I mean? And uh, I definitely am not. And so I disagree with him. Uh, on a lot of things, but uh, he's still an interesting guy, and I think uh, in some ways even a sympathetic kind of figure. Uh, I probably shouldn't feel sorry for him. He's doing a lot better in life than I am in the sense that, remember, uh, there for a while there, I think on Patreon alone, wasn't he making something like 70000 bucks a month or something crazy like that? It's just like, imagine being able to wipe out all your debt with one month's pay or something. You know what I mean? It's just insane. 
Well, I think that that goes to show that money isn't everything and that, um, you know, I think there's a lot of truth in those studies that kind of reveal that it seems to be the case that after like $70,000, happiness doesn't really change much. You know, if, if you can afford to pay your bills and enjoy some like creature comforts and stuff like that, um, that beyond that, you know, like beyond that $70,000 threshold, you know, the, there's not any additional guaranteed happiness. In fact, a lot of, you know, very wealthy people can be some of the most messed up and broken people, you know what I mean? And I often want, you know, I've thought about this, um, and it's very theoretical on my end because I don't have a lot of money, you know, but I've often wondered, just found myself wondering what it must be like to be wealthy and what some of the drawbacks must be. And I imagine that, you know, in, in some cases, there can probably be this kind of neurosis that develops where, you know, you can basically have any material thing you want. And then you realize that that doesn't solve all your problems. It doesn't solve those core issues and insecurities you might have, you know, and it doesn't free you or make you inured to those basic vagaries of existence that all of us will get sick, all of us will suffer, um, eventually all of us will die. You know, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can't, as the hack need saying goes, you can't take it with you. And I'll try not to go off on too long of a digression, but this kind of reminds me of myself and something I've, oh, not the money part, because I certainly don't have much of that, but um, this whole thing about how you can't take it with you or, you know, our relationship with material possessions. And I can remember having kind of odd existential thoughts regarding material possessions all the way back into early childhood. I remember being just like a small kid and my mother took me to what was, I think, Sears and Roebuck or Robux or whatever it was called at the time. Uh, are those stores still around? I think they just might be called Sears now or maybe they entirely went out of business. I don't know. But they sold, you know, like uh, everything, tools, clothing, uh, kids toys. I remember, uh, yeah, being a little kid and there was this toy I really wanted. It was a uh, Boba Fett slave ship or whatever, you know, and my mother got it for me. And, uh, you know, it's something I really wanted. And I finally got it. I remember looking at it and wondering, this sounds totally batshit crazy, but wondering, how do I know this thing is real? How do I know that anything's real? Um, you know, does it matter that I have it? You know, what does it mean to have something? You know what I mean? And even this is, you know, kind of things coming full circle. It's interesting because I think I told you guys how uh, in that lock, that very long lockdown episode I did where I was talking about some of like the Japanese robot cartoons I watched as a kid and some of the die-cast metal toys that I had as a kid or that maybe I wanted and never got to have. Well, I always told myself I would never be an adult who collects toys. Uh, not that I have any disdain for adults who do collect toys. 
Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, and plenty, I know it's like plenty of YouTubers. If you look in the background, maybe they record in their computer office or bedroom and you'll see like little knickknacks and sometimes like, you know, collectibles or toys or something. So like I was feeling very sen sentimental about those old die cast metal robots. So I actually bought a few of them, like these little reprints or reissues of these little Japanese robot figures, like 3.5 inch figures and the, these little boxes with cool Japanese writing on it and the, and the ro metal robots inside and kind of a little styrofoam bed. I remember like at first when I when I would receive one in the mail, I'd be like, oh, th this is really cool. Yeah, I like the look of this and this is going to look cool if I just put it in the background up here on a shelf or whatever. And then there'd be times when I'd look at it and I'm like, okay, I have it. But what does that mean? Someday, you know, um, I'll be dead. This thing will just, you know, be in someone else's room or be in a, uh, a city dump or something somewhere. <laughs> you know, it was just weird. And just like when I was a little kid, I'm thinking like, what does it mean to own something? What does it mean to have something? Um, it's an external object outside yourself. You know, why does it matter? And, and it's weird because I would have these kind of crazy neurotic feelings sometimes. Like when I would see like a really old person driving a really nice new car, I always thought it was this weird kind of obscene juxtaposition that you would have this really slick, shiny, impressive, you know, beautiful new vehicle. But the thing or being inside it, piloting it, is this wizened old creature destined for the grave. You know what I mean? And it just seemed to be this kind of visual reminder of the fact that you can't take it with you. Um, man, yeah, I'm, I'm almost like impressively neurotic. You know what I mean? But anyway, back to rich people. So you know, I also think that you know, wealth doesn't guarantee happy relationships, you know? And I think a, a prime example of that, and I'm actually a Johnny Depp fan, and uh, I've always, he just always seemed like such a cool guy, and I love how eccentric he is and how he chooses these kind of eccentric, you know, quirky roles. And it's sad seeing what's become of him of late. You know, he's uh, in this kind of really toxic relationship with Amber Heard, um, and you can just kind of see, you know, he's getting older, the spark is gone from his eye and he's dealing with the stress of all this, you know what I mean? And, uh, there was some really kind of crazy reveals or whatever, you know, I think, uh, I heard people, um, covering the story about, you know, just how toxic their relationship was. And there was even a story about her actually literally crapping on his bed, just really crazy stuff. So, yeah, I mean, wealth doesn't guarantee happy. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, uh, I think if you're a person who's struggling, a certain amount of wealth certain prob certainly probably is going to increase your happiness and your quality of life. But, you know, beyond a certain point, it probably just, it stops mattering. And uh, if anything, it might even breed more neuroses or whatever, you know? And just so I don't have to issue a correction next week, I know it probably sounded like I was saying that uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard are presently in a relationship. Um, it's, uh, I think it's safe to say that <laughs> they are no longer an item, you know. 
Uh, and, and I think another weird thing, a fact that came out is that there were like um, DMs or whatever between Amber Heard and Elon Musk. And it sounded like he was really trying to get into those pants. So just a weird thing. And uh, I really don't want to, you know, branch off into another digression off of this digression or whatever. But Elon Musk, man, that, that guy is a weird cat. The more he... Uh, you know, posts on Twitter, the more I learn about him, just, uh, I don't know, man, kind of a, uh, a scary cat in a way. So anyway, let's go all the way back to what I was actually talking about, Jordan Peterson. And so, yeah, I mean, he's another example of someone who, you know, had a cum quickly accumulated a great amount of wealth. And that might be a another factor, you know, that that might do... Uh, a number on you, you know, um, once again, not trying to make a, you know, make everyone feel sorry for a rich guy, but I'm just saying, you know, uh, psychologically that could have some kind of negative repercussions. Also, you know, your, um, your income bracket changing that drastic, that drastically, that quickly, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and what in some ways is probably very good. It might feel very nice to all of a sudden not have to worry about if you can make your bills at the end of the month anymore and that kind of thing. But anyway, there's been some new revelations about Jordan Peterson. And once again, I didn't pull any, uh, any video or audio for this, but these new revelations come straight from his daughter. So if you want, you know, you can go to her, if the video's still up, you know, you can go to her YouTube channel or check out her social f uh, media feeds if she didn't delete any of this stuff. But, um, yeah, as, as much as I disagree with Jordan Peterson on certain things, I thought it was nice to see him being something of his old, you know, just on a human level, seeing that he was doing all right and that he was with his daughter and they were having this nice conversation or whatever, you know what I mean? But it seems like things have taken a turn for the worse again. Uh, this is really strange. So yeah, so they were in Russia. Then, um, I think since that interview that she published on her YouTube channel, they ended up going to Serbia. Very strange. And uh, on a side note, has anyone out there ever watched a movie called, uh, is it called a Serbian film? Um, really disturbing, messed up movie. Some of the special effects are kind of, uh, you know, amateur level. But just the idea, some of the things that, that are depicted. Uh, yeah, really warped movie. Uh, anyway, uh, so they went to Serbia and... I think part of the reason may have been that they were told that uh, that COVID-19 cases were really low or something in Serbia. So they were going to kind of lay low there. And I think it turns out that the government was actually suppressing the truth about uh, the amount of cases, etc. And um, Michaela Peterson actually posted video of herself to social media where she's in a hookah lounge, kind of casually puffing on a hookah, you know, and uh, drinking. And she had cute little hashtags like COVID-19, never heard of it, Serbian vibes, things like that, you know what I mean? And uh, then it turns out that the hospital where they were keeping Jordan Peterson in Serbia 
COVID-19 just swept through the whole thing. And the whole family, the daughter, the husband, their infant, and Jordan Peterson. Sorry about that. Some kind of weather alert. Uh, and Jordan Peterson all contracted COVID-19. And she was just casually kind of talking about how, oh, you know, all of us, even, you know, our baby, we all... We all pulled through it. It wasn't that bad. But dad has it in both lungs. Or so, like, talk about how it, it, it's, a, it, it's a, a disease known to wreak havoc on the respiratory system. And she was talking about how Jordan Peterson had it and how it, how it affected both of his lungs. And how he now has, uh, now he's come down with pneumonia for the second time this year. But she's saying it in kind of like this flaky schoolgirl kind of way, just matter-of-factly, and it's like, holy shit, man. So I think there may be a kind of weird toxic dynamic in that father-daughter relationship where I think, well, Jordan Peterson's an interesting guy because I think no matter what you think of him, I think he is a highly intelligent, thoughtful human being. And... Um, but also a really sensitive guy, maybe even soft in certain ways. And I think his daughter is like the apple of his eye. But his daughter, um, definitely not as bright as her dad. You know, definitely, I, I don't, I'm trying not to be mean. Because maybe she is intelligent in a sense. It's just that she's still emotionally immature. But yeah, she doesn't seem to be... The, the brightest or most mature of individuals. And yet she seems to hold a lot of sway, you know, with or over her father. And of course we know that, I don't know if she's still on it, but uh, she went on that crazy all meat diet. And then, you know, she was promoting it. I think, you know, trying to uh, turn it into a source of income, you know, uh, kind of peddling this uh, carnivore diet, the lion diet, I think she called it. And Jordan Peterson, uh, strangely enough, he um, adopted this all-meat diet too. So obviously, I mean, his, his daughter does have uh, a certain degree of influence uh, on him or over him. And so uh, multiple times during this episode, uh, I've said how I think Jordan Peterson is an intelligent guy. Um, but being intelligent doesn't mean, you know, and well-read and highly literate or whatever, doesn't mean that you're always commonsensical or rational or that you don't have certain blind spots. And I feel like one of his blind spots is, uh, you know, with uh, this tendency of his to make these kind of irrational connections or leaps, you know, in um, in the realm of his own personal health. Uh, like there's a famous story he talks about. You can go watch the the um, Joe Rogan interview. I think it's uh, the Joe Rogan Experience number uh, eleven hundred and thirty nine. Uh, Jordan Peterson drinks apple cider, causing him to feel impending doom and sleep deprivation for twenty five days. So this says apple cider, but I think it was technically apple cider vinegar. Yeah, so he claims that he drank a small amount of apple cider vinegar and it caused him to uh, stay up for 25 days. And so, yeah, I think it's the same kind of strange logic that led him to embrace this crazy all-meat diet of his daughters, you know? 
But there you have it, more strange news on the Jordan Peterson front. Uh, and now this next story, this is another one. I didn't know if it necessarily belonged in the uh, politics section or not, but I didn't know where else to put it. And uh, it's a, a story about, well, not a story, but I want to talk about antidepressants. And this is in response to uh, Brett Weinstein's podcast. So once again... You know, I was beaten down by YouTube's algorithm or whatever, uh, forced against my will to listen to yet another <laughs> uh, episode of, of Brett Weinstein's uh, Dark Horse podcast. And it was just a really quick comment in passing, you know, but it caught my attention. And I forget what uh, subject they were discussing, but for some reason it came up. And uh, he and his wife were talking about antidepressants and uh, mentioned in passing how it seems to be the case that, you know, in a sense, they don't really help. They just kind of cause a, a flat affect. You know what I mean? And um, as someone who's been on, you know, various antidepressants over the past uh, roughly 20 years or so, you know, um, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine when people kind of demonize antidepressants and I'm not saying that's necessarily what they were doing, but it seems like, and I think Joe Rogan does this a lot too. In fairness to Rogan, he will sometimes kind of mention as a caveat how, well, I don't even know if it's a caveat, but he'll, he'll mention that he has a lot of friends who are on antidepressants and swear that, you know, um, they, they completely changed their lives for the better. And, you know, these drugs have been, you know, a great boon or help to them. You know what I mean? Um, but even when he says that, he says it with a kind of air of skepticism in his voice, like almost like he thinks maybe they're not doing as much as his friend, as his friends who take them think they're doing. And he'll, you know, mention how he thinks uh, antidepressants and ADHD drugs, uh, you know, psychotropic psychiatric drugs are way overprescribed and that they can be dangerous and this and that. And I think there's some truth in that. I'm sure that um, there probably are a lot of cases where doctors are too quick to prescribe antidepressants or ADHD drugs and, and things like that. But these drugs also help a lot of people, you know, and depression is, you know, uh, it spans a whole spectrum. There might be people who have kind of mild depression, you know, they experience a kind of lingering low mood, but they can still function, you know, and then there's other people who their quality of life is probably really impacted by uh, depression, um, maybe to the point where they have trouble functioning. And then there's people who have severe clinical depression um, where, you know, maybe they're consumed by uh, suicidal thoughts or they it reaches the point where they're borderline catatonic and have trouble even, you know, functioning at all or getting out of bed because depression often has physical symptoms, you know, and uh, this kind of leads us back to Jordan Peterson because one thing I always found refreshing about Jordan Peterson is that despite being this kind of darling, you know, of these kind of right-leaning, conservative, traditional types or whatever, you know, who you might expect to kind of 
promote some kind of rugged individualism and who might, you know, think that antidepressants are for the weak or whatever that you should learn to do without them, you know. Despite all that, Jordan Peterson is really open about his own struggle with depression and how much um, antidepressants have helped him in the past, you know what I mean? So I I have always uh, appreciated that at least. But of course, you know, on the other hand, you could argue that he kind of overturned that good work when he uh, was promoting how a meat-only diet was able to, you know, get him off of his uh, off of his meds. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, but he would talk about the kind of severe physical symptoms he experienced with his with his depression and how it kind of slows down your thinking, uh, can even make it hard to physically function. And me personally, as someone who takes antidepressants, I always feel like people in my particular situation are always kind of overlooked, you know, in these little conversations where people warn against, you know, the dangers of antidepressants and how they're over prescribed and all that. Because there's a lot of people like me out there who, you know, suffer from this kind of comorbidity of multiple conditions. Um, because often uh, chronic pain, in my case, chronic migraines, go hand in hand with depression. You know what I mean? And so serotonergic drugs both help the chronic pain condition and also, uh, you know, the depression. And certain antidepressants have also been shown to be effective in treating um, different kinds of nerve pain disorders, etc. And most of you listening are probably already aware of this or, you know, you've heard me talk about it ad nauseum. But the uh, neurotransmitter serotonin is thought to elevate mood and contribute to, you know, a sense of well-being. It's actually the same neurotransmitter that floods your brain when you take, uh, you know, ecstasy, MDMA, Molly, uh, whatever you want to call it. But the effects are much more subtle and gradual with antidepressants, you know, um, the effect builds up in your system over weeks and months until you reach the kind of desired effect, you know. And not only does serotonin elevate mood, but it's also thought to regulate pain or regulate pain perception, at least. Um, and, and so that's, in theory, why it, it seems to help with, you know, chronic pain conditions. But also, you know, when you have both depression and chronic pain, it's kind of like a, a vicious circle or, you know, it's kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg. You know, did the, the depression, you know, the constant low mood and the stress, you know, lead to the chronic pain? Or did living with, you know, the chronic pain... Um, lower your mood, understandably, you know, you're not going to be um, too happy if you're constantly walking around in, uh, in pain. Um, and they probably kind of feed each other, you know what I mean? Um, the pain exacerbates the depression and the depression exacerbates the pain, you know? And so for people who suffer with those comorbid conditions, uh, depression, chronic pain, I mean, antidepressants can be a complete life changer. Um, 
and you guys have kind of followed my journey, uh, those of you who are longtime listeners, and you've listened to me when, you know, I've been caught in those rough patches where my, uh, my current med will lose its efficacy and the, um, the chronic migraines start to reemerge and I have to kind of struggle to find another med that works, you know what I mean? And, uh, Walking around with a, a chronic, with chronic migraine is not something I'd wish on my worst, my worst enemy. Uh, that intense, hard to describe pain accompanied by like this constant nausea, it's just a, a miserable state to be in. And when you find the right medication, uh, it can be like, you know, like right now, I'm almost tempted to to knock on wood, even though I'm a skeptic here, you know what I mean? Because just the thought of experiencing those headaches again. But yeah, when you find a medication that really works for you, it's like the, it's like the migraines don't even exist anymore. It's like um, the difference between night and day. So I, I wish people like myself, as well as, um, you know, people who maybe don't have the chronic pain component, but suffer from severe clinical depression, you know, people who really benefit from antidepressants, I wish they were included in these conversations and, you know, um, they were kind of touched on more, uh, instead of just this kind of fear mongering, um, and these, you know, this kind of poo pooing of, uh, of antidepressants. I never say poo pooing in real life, but you know what I'm talking about? And this kind of fear that, you know, antidepressants are going to cause a flat affect or they're going to turn you into a zombie. It's funny because I think everyone, just about everyone who takes antidepressants, at first, that's one of their main concerns. Am I going to be myself, you know, after I start taking this drug? And I know I had those concerns too. It's funny, I find that with some antidepressants, there may be this initial phase you go through and a similar phase can happen when you, you know, if you decide to try to taper off the medication, that when you're first going on the drug, that maybe for like two or three weeks, you might feel kind of foggy or off, uh, which is understandable because your brain chemistry is being, you know, kind of adjusted. And when you're getting off of an antidepressant, you can kind of re-enter this kind of temporary kind of foggy state until um, the medicine gets out of your system. But once you're uh, once you find your equilibrium and your body is kind of adjusted, your body or brain has adjusted to the medication. If it's the right drug for you, you should feel pretty good. You know, you should feel like you you have a clear, clean state of mind. Um, that, and also I should mention this, that brain fog can actually be a symptom of depression. You know, when you're really affected by depression, it can kind of like slow your thinking, kind of, um, make you feel kind of muddled and foggy. Uh, you know what I mean? And admittedly, one of the frustrating things about antidepressants is that, you know, everyone's different. Everyone has their own unique kind of physiology or brain chemistry and finding the right drug for you can be uh, a bit of trial and error, and that's pretty common with people who are, you know, trying to find the right antidepressant. Uh, a drug that works great for me might not work as well for you, uh, vice versa, etc. 
And right now I'm on an old school antidepressant. I'm on amitriptyline. Um, and, and these old school tricyclic antidepressants can kind of, you know, make you kind of tired or, or foggy or whatever. Um, but even with that, you know, I, I actually feel pretty clear headed for a while, while I was having, um, some kind of memory issues, which I understandably wasn't happy about, you know what I mean? And I think, um, I think it might have, you know, have to do with the anticholinergic properties of these drugs. Um, uh, drugs like amitriptyline can kind of affect your memory or whatever. Uh, but I feel like even that is starting to get better. And the only reason why I'm on, you know, one of these older drugs right now is because, the SSRI I was on, fluoxetine, I was on for probably over a decade, and that worked great. Uh, but just, and this happens, they call it like Prozac poop out. Like the, uh, eventually your body just kind of builds a tolerance to the drug and it doesn't work as well as it did. And for a while, you know, you might be able to just increase the dose and that does the trick, but then eventually you might just reach the end of the road and it's time for a new drug. And amitriptyline, is a kind of frontline medication in the the fight against uh, you know chronic migraine. But I don't think any antidepressant ever changed you know who I am. All those positive things I like about myself, you know, my core self, were you know, was always still there. Um, my interests, my passions, my sense of humor, um, the foods I like, whatever, you know, all those things that make me me were still there. It's just that um, I felt, you know, less miserable, more kind of emotionally even keeled. And you might think, oh, even keeled, that, uh, that's the flat affect people warn about. But no, um, flat affect seems to imply that you're just kind of a robot, that your emotions are, uh, you know, just always flat or, or whatever, uh, never peak or anything. But no, you know, there, there would just be this kind of baseline sense of well-being and you could still laugh at jokes. You could still, you know, feel sad when you should feel sad and that kind of thing. But it's hard to describe, you know, when you're really in the grip of depression and chronic pain and, and these things are untreated or undertreated, you know, um, things can seem, you know, so bleak and dysphoric and hopeless, you know what I mean? And antidepressants, if you find the right one, should help lift you out of that and be able to function and feel a sense of well-being and experience uh, the normal range of human emotion, you know what I mean? I mean, well on antidepressants, you know, uh, you guys know me, I've joked around on the, po on the podcast, uh, I've broken down when, you know, one of my dogs has died, um, you know, I've known excitement, disappointment, the whole range of human emotion. And I would say if you're taking an antidepressant and you, um, you find yourself unable to laugh at jokes or unable to grieve or feel sad, you should talk to your prescribing physician and try to find a new med. You know what I mean? Um, because when you're on the right antidepressant, the one that's right for you, you shouldn't feel like some emotionless automaton, you know?
But moving on, and so this first episode utilizing this new format wasn't so streamlined, but at least I, I've been adhering to the basic format and sticking with, you know, all the, the segments, etc. And so for the, uh, the short or brief, let's hope it's brief, uh, history slash science segment, uh, here is a story from... Where the heck is this from? Big Think? Uh, I found it in Apple News. DNA from an unknown ancestor found in modern humans. Our family tree is complicated, and some of the branches are still unlabeled. So this is written by Scotty, Scotty Hendricks, August 8th. Uh, okay. And here's some bullet points. A new study of the genomes of modern humans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans suggests the three were interbreeding quite often. The study also found DNA from an unidentified archaic human ancestor, which we inherited from the Denisovans. Homo erectus is the most likely source of this DNA. And, uh, you know, I'm disappointed in you guys. You know, this is a show that... Uh, fully supports the LGBTQ community. And uh, I know you guys were laughing when I said homo erectus, so cut it out. So, so homo erectus, well, actually I was the one laughing, is the most likely source of this DNA. Modern humans are the last members of the genus Homo. While we've managed to outlast an extensive list of cousins and genetic ancestors, their genetic heritage lives on through us. More than a few studies have reported that many people today can trace their ancestry back to the Neanderthals, or uh, Neanderthals, uh, tomato, tomato, and the Denisovans. A new study suggests that DNA of an even older ancestor lives in through us. And I'm wondering if that's a typo, because that reads very uh, awkwardly. You know? um, a new study suggests that the DNA of an even older ancestor lives in through us. Should it be lives on through us? And has some startling implications for the sex lives of our ancient ancestors. Some of our evolutionary relatives never really left, genetically speaking. The paper Mapping Gene Flow Between Ancient Hominins Through Demography-Aware Inference of the Ancestral Recombination Graph was published in PLOS. What the hell is uh, PLOS Genetics? Oh, Public Library of Science. Dumbass. Uh, its authors used a new statistical method to analyze the genomes of two Neanderthals, a Denisovan, and two modern humans walk into a bar. The new method allowed the researchers to determine when segments of one individual's DNA are worked into the chromosomes of another. These occurrences are called recombination events and can be used to determine when specific genes entered our genome and provide evidence of where it came from. As an example of how this could be used, if Neanderthal DNA contained genes from another prehuman ancestor that they then passed to us, this method would identify it. The analysis confirmed previous studies that showed that modern humans interbred with Neanderthals and Denisovans. However, this analysis suggests that some of this mixing took place between 200,000 and 300,000 years ago, long before what previous studies had suggested. It also indicates that more instances of interbreeding occurred than previously suspected. 
Most interestingly, the researchers noticed that 1% of the DNA in the Denisovans from an even more ancient human ancestor. So is that another typo that seems uh, grammatically off? The researchers noticed that 1% of the DNA in the Denisovans from an even more ancient human ancestor, maybe it should be, is from an even more ancient human ancestor? Anyway, 15% of the genes that this ancestor passed on to the Denisovans still exist in the modern human genome. Exactly who this ancestor was is remains unknown. So this thing is littered with typos. Let's see. Exactly who this ancestor was is remains unknown. So it should probably be exactly who this ancestor was remains unknown. <clears throat> Damn. But so maybe I can get a job uh, spell checking for this uh, this fine online publication. Anyway, but some clues point to who it was. The fact that this ancestor separated from the lineage that would lead to modern humans about one million years ago is the most useful one we can this article sucks. I mean, it's extremely fascinating, but whoever wrote this man... So let's try this again. The fact that this ancestor separated from... And I think that's supposed to be lineage, but it says lineage, which is also a real word. Uh, that would lead to modern humans about a million years ago is the most useful one we currently have. The most useful what? Uh, this led the researchers to suggest Homo erectus as the most likely candidate. The bane of all school teachers focusing on human evolution and the original quote-unquote missing link, Homo erectus was the first human ancestor to leave Africa. They spread widely throughout the old world. With their remains found from Spain to Java, they resembled modern humans, though they were a tad shorter. They were the first to control fire pyromancy, uh, made tools, created artwork, and likely had rudimentary language. It should be repeated that while Homo erectus is the, is the probable source of this ancient DNA, the jury is still out. We would have to sequence its genome to know for sure. All right, enough of that typo-littered abomination. On to uh, the pop culture segment. So I mentioned this TV show on that epically long Patreon uh, bonus episode. Uh, love the Doom Patrol, still watching that. Uh, the most recent episode had a very disturbing kind of uh, 70s orgy type of situation. Um, but still a great show. Uh, love uh, Brendan Fraser as the voice of Cliff Steele, the robot man, the comic uh, relief. Uh, what else? Um, oh yeah, this was a blast from the past. Uh, know it's funny about uh, amitriptyline? You know, I often kind of half-jokingly complain about uh, how it seems to affect my uh, short-term memory and whatnot. But um, then, oddly enough, things like obscure scatological like bits of information from my ancient past will all of a sudden come to the surface out of nowhere. And recently I thought about Samantha Fox out of nowhere. So Samantha Fox was like this drop-dead gorgeous bombshell from back in my day uh, when I was a wee kid. Um, and I remember, um, I almost feel like she played a role in my kind of coming of age, you know. I still have erotic kind of uh, <laughs> feelings or memories or whatever when I think about her. Um, yeah, so she was like a singer slash glamour model or whatever. 
Um, yeah, so she was British, and so she was the type of curvy chick that would appear uh, on, you know, page three of The Sun or whatever. Uh, and I remember, um, yeah, this is really etched into my brain. Uh, I bought a Samantha Fox uh, calendar. It was like a big poster slash calendar thing uh, from Newberry Comics. And because of my, you know, strict Catholic mother, like trying to stamp out anything that remotely had to do with sex. I had to hide this, uh, this poster or calendar under my bed and she eventually found it. That wasn't good. And also th that reminds me of the time when, um, it was one of, uh, of, uh, Pam Anderson's first appearances in like a, a nudie mag. I'm trying to think if it was Playboy or if it was Penthouse, but, um, my mother caught one of my older brothers with that magazine and threw it in the trash. So I snuck out and retrieved it, you know, under cover of night or whatever. And then I stupidly left it on top of my bed with my bedroom door open. And my like, mother came in and found the same magazine again and caught hell for that. Uh, yeah, so strict, like, Catholic upbringing. I don't think my father was as strict as my mother about that stuff, but he felt like he had to kind of go along, you know. Um, I had an uncle who worked for Sony, and one day he brought, like, little gifts from, you know, the company to, uh, to give to us kids. And so the boys, you know, because I have three siblings, two older brothers, one older sister, and, uh, to us boys, he gave posters like uh, it was uh, <laughs> it was so 80s. It was like an attractive, you know, blonde with crazy big, you know, teased up uh, hair and like, I don't know what you would call it, like a, a leotard, a unitard or whatever, like a, a black skin tight uh, thing. And um, she's like crouching down, holding a Walkman. You know, it says something about Sony in the corner of, of the poster. And my mother was like, no way. Those things did not uh, last very long. But Samantha Fox had a hit song back in the day. It's weird because I'm a big Doors fan. And this song is also called Touch Me. <laughs> but in parentheses, I want your body or something like that. And I actually... Uh, just to have a sense of nostalgia, I actually downloaded the song, you know, using Apple Music. So I was driving around town listening to uh, Samantha Fox. Very strange. And then there's another, uh, wow, it, it feels too sad or heavy to include in pop culture, but I guess I will. You know, I was a big Anthony Bourdain fan, and of course, uh, you know, he ended up uh, taking his own life. Um... And Joe Rogan had celebrity chef, uh, I think his name is David Cho, uh, on his show. And uh, I remember uh, that guy being on, um, I'm trying to think if it was Anthony Bourdain's CNN show or if it was his older show with the Travel Channel. But um, yeah, they were good friends. And he would often have this guy on his show and... Um, They'd talk about cooking, and David Cho would talk about talk about his experience with you know Chinese cuisine and all that. Uh, but it was wild because he looked way different. He was on Joe Rogan. He had his hair was all grown out, and he was talking about being really candid about his kind of life struggles, like his crazy addictions, his sex addiction, a ad dick, his sex addiction. Um, 
his gambling addiction and how these addictions were just like overtaking his life and, you know, ruining him, etc. And he was talking about his relationship with Anthony Bourdain. You know, he was talking about how it's almost like he had a black hole and nothing was ever enough. It didn't matter how much he gambled, how much he had sex. It was never enough and he always felt miserable. And he was talking about how Anthony Bourdain had called him relatively, you know, shortly before his suicide and asked him, hey, man, are you miserable? You know, I feel miserable. And they were talking about how both of these guys have known success, but they still felt miserable. And so he felt like he missed a chance to help his friend. And then, you know, Anthony Bourdain ended up taking his own life. Um, So just really heavy stuff. And he ended up breaking down, just sobbing on um on the joe rogan show and it really moved me and um i'm sure that anthony bourdain already had his issues and his lifelong struggles you know but still looking back in retrospect i still think it may have been asia argento that kind of pushed him over the edge or was the uh, straw that broke the camel's back Uh, I remember when they first coupled up, I thought it was really cool because I was a big Anthony Bourdain fan. I was a fan of her father, uh, Dario Argento, this Italian horror film director, you know, who made these kind of experimental uh, horror films. And I was a fan of hers, too. Uh, I remember her from George Romero's Land of the Dead. And she was also in some movie where she French kisses a Rottweiler on stage. Very strange. But, um... It kind of came out that um, there might have been a kind of toxic dynamic to their relationship and that she may have been something of a crazy lady uh, who was known for being kind of toxic. And um, remember, is kind of right before Anthony Bourdain took his own life, um, these pictures emerged in the papers showing her canoodling with some um, Italian photojournalist. So who knows, you know, he might have been in a vulnerable place and saw those photos. Uh, That's just conjecture, but it it seems like something about, you know, their relationship may have pushed him over the edge. But What a dark and sad ending for such a great guy. You know, I didn't know him personally, but like his fans all over the world. uh, I I loved the guy. I loved kind of vicariously sharing his adventures as he traveled the world, kind of learning through his experiences. And um, I loved his irreverent kind of world-weary sense of humor. Uh, yeah, it's just, I still can't believe he's gone and that he died that way. Uh, and that's a very heavy note to end on. But I was going to say uh, this concludes the pop culture segment of the show. And pop culture seems like such a light term for such a heavy thing that we were just discussing. And uh, that also concludes um, this episode in its entirety. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone, as always. And you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. And speaking of that, this is such a long episode that I may just make this an audio-only YouTube video where I just kind of, you know, attach a still thumbnail and upload the audio. 
Uh, and uh, if you want to support the show, uh, you know, you can support Why Do Hair monetarily by going to patreon.com slash theweekendout. All right, brothers and sisters, uh, thanks once again for listening, and until the next time. Mm-hmm.